I had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine last week. We got together for lunch and segued into a lot of topics, but one of the things that we talked about was the Brett Kavanaugh controversy and some of the issues surrounding the Me Too movement. And it got me thinking that feminism and the Me Too movement might be an interesting topic for this week. So what I want to do is start with a history of feminism and with each movement, because there have been several movements that have focused on different topics, to address both the things which each movement fought for and the things that they championed and their successes, as well as the criticisms that each wave has garnered. Throughout history and in various pieces of classic literature, if you look closely, you can find sort of hints of feminist thought or what today we might call feminist thought, although back then it wasn't seen as such. But generally speaking, the woman who originated feminism as we know it today was a woman named Mary Wollstonecraft, and she's accepted to be sort of the mother of feminism. And she was living during the Enlightenment, which was an 18th century movement in Europe which was characterized by the belief in rationalism and belief that through human reason alone, people could uncover truth without having to rely on religion or tradition. And one of the premier philosophers of that period, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, was the one who seemed to have influenced Mary Wollstonecraft the most. And he advocated for a more democratic society and for, and Wollstonecraft envisioned a society in which women participated in Rousseau's ideal democratic society as well as as much as men. One of the core concepts of the Enlightenment was an idea of universal brotherhood, which was paired hand-in-hand with, of course, the idea of human reason, which was seen as a faculty that everyone possessed and could access and, and use in the right environment. But, of course, you can't argue on the one hand for a universal brotherhood and a common humanity, and then on the other hand say that certain groups are excluded from that, such as women, racial minorities, etc. And so, of course, that argument, that belief that there is a universal humanity common to all, opened the door for the sorts of movement, the sorts of liberation movements uh, that grew out of the the 18th century. And so, of course, Mary Wollstonecraft was, was no ex- exception to that. She's famous for writing a treatise called The Vindication of the Rights of Women, in which she examined and criticized the gender roles that were enforced on women at the time. Now, granted, if you read it, you tend to see that the roles that she critiques are are those of the middle, upper-class European women, but we can get to that later. But her treatise ended up laying the groundwork for feminism in the British Isles and in and in the United States. Fun fact, Mary Wollstonecraft was also the mother of Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, a very talented family. Now, of course, there have been plenty of feminist movements in various countries at different times all around the world. But since I'm speaking to an American audience, I want to focus just on the feminist movements that have taken place and have affected the United States. So the first 
official feminist movement here in the United States, also called first wave feminism, focused almost exclusively on legal issues that women faced. So most famously, we have the the issue of granting women the right to vote. There was also advocacy for inheriting property, for greater access to jobs, and having greater say in the legal rights of their children. And so this is the movement where we get famous feminists like uh, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, etc. And it's interesting because those ladies, there was a lot of crossover between the suffrage movement for women and also uh, getting voting rights for black, well, black men at the time. The women that I just mentioned worked a lot with Frederick Douglass, who was heavily involved in both movements. And the suffrage movement of first wave feminism attracted, it seems to be, a wide range of women. You had conservative Christian groups like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, who, by the way, strongly advocated for prohibition back in the day. So this movement attracted women like them, as well as the National Women's Suffrage Association, which was famous at the time for being more aggressive in their in their protesting. They used picketing and hunger strikes and such, and they tended to attract more attention. But despite their differing goals for how the culture should be run, they all came together to support legal reforms and greater legal rights for women. But of course, it took time for these legal reforms to occur. For instance, in 1840, Texas allowed married women to own property in their own name. But it wasn't until 1860 that New York allowed the same. And in 1869, Wyoming was the first state to grant women the right to vote. But it wasn't until 1920 that the 18th Amendment which granted all women in the United States the right to vote. It wasn't until 1920 that that amendment was ratified by Congress. And it probably seems incredible to our modern minds today to think that anybody could voice any objections to just advocating for the simple right to vote or to have legal determination over one's property or over one's children. But when I googled anti-suffragette posters, the top results are just absolutely incredible. And it's interesting, actually, to see that not much has changed. The top results depict the suffragettes as bitter, vindictive, unattractive old harpies who want to just do away with men and that their suffragette cause was actually to just get rid of men altogether. There's one poster of a little boy telling a little girl to basically go back inside and play with her dolls because a woman's place isn't in the home, and she's wearing a suffragette sash. And the reason why I say not much has changed is not because I want to be dismissive of any criticism towards feminism or any feminist cause. I don't want to be dismissive at all. It just is an unfortunate reoccurrence, it seems, that whenever there is some sort of uh, feminist advocacy or feminist cause, there tend to be some people who just say, oh, the reason why these women are advocating for this is because they're bitter and vengeful and they want to get rid of men. And that 
in and of itself is not enough to argue against any feminist cause. It's always better to argue against the content of an idea rather than to smear an idea purely based off of who is advocating for that idea. Criticism around first wave feminism tends to focus on the fact that the first wave was rather narrow in its scope. It only took into account legal issues, for instance, it barely focused on any cultural issues that women faced. It also tended to focus on the experiences of upper and middle class white women. Uh, it didn't take into account that women of different socioeconomic classes, of different races, experienced different types of misogyny. And if you take the time to read A Vindication of the Rights of Women or even just a selection, I think you'll find, or at least I have found when I've, when I've had to read it for classes, that, uh, that Mary Wollstonecraft did tend to focus on the experiences that she had and that her fellow women in the same socioeconomic class tended to have. For instance, uh, she talks a lot about how women are not, are not encouraged to work, they're not encouraged to be as educated as their male counterparts. However, she was living in a time when, to, when not working was itself a sign of social status, but of course, the flip side of that was that there were plenty of women in the lower classes who were expected to work constantly, especially during the Industrial Revolution. And so while Wollstonecraft's treatise did resonate with women in her same class, women in the lower classes, if they had the time to read it, which of course they didn't because they were working all the time, but if they had if they had the time to read it, they would not have recognized in her writing anything that resembled their own experiences. Personally, I find these criticisms to be a bit, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. We tend to be a little bit unforgiving towards our ancestors because we don't see them as being as enlightened as we are. But they were, but I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that most of them had good intentions and were doing the best they could with what they had. It is also useful to remember, too, that at the time, women even just saying that they wanted the right to vote was itself seen as very, as very radical. To push for even more radical cultural changes at that time might not have gone as smoothly as, as we would imagine it would have gone. So that's first wave feminism. So, of course, we get to second wave feminism, which started in the early 60s. It was affected by, of course, World War II uh, after the surviving men came home and took over the jobs which women had temporarily been doing while the men were fighting abroad. This pushing of women out of the workforce, of course, led to the ideal, almost a it's almost become an American myth, really, of the uh, the 50s white picket fence living in the suburbs with the, the mother who stays home and cooks and cleans and has, you know, two children and everyone's happy all the time and that sort of thing. You have the classic shows like Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best, which showed that domestic 
image as as an ideal for Americans to work towards. But of course, I think like any ideal, this 1950s white picket fence suburb myth was not desirable for everyone, of course, and for some people it just wasn't possible. And then in 1963, Betty Friedan published the what is now called a classic of feminist thought titled The Feminine Mystique, and she was inspired to write it by another classic, The Second Sex, written by Simone de Beauvoir uh, in 1949. And Betty Friedan's book spoke to the discontent that a lot of women, especially housewives, were feeling at the time with that restrictive suburban uh, white picket fence lifestyle. And in her book, Frieden discussed a survey that she had conducted, which found that women who played a role at home and in the workforce were more satisfied with their lives compared to women who just stayed at home. And other important cultural events which laid the groundwork for the second wave was the approval by the FDA of the oral contraceptive pill in 1960, which was then made available in 1961. And of course, this had the effect then of giving women greater control over whether they wanted that 1950s white picket fence ideal or if they wanted something different. Along with that, President John F. Kennedy's administration also made women's rights a key issue in his administration. So under his presidency, we have such victories as the Equal Pay Act of 1963, And after Kennedy's assassination, there was also Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination by employers on the basis of sex, race, color, religion, or national origin. In the late 60s and early 70s, that's also when we get orders and acts such as Title IX, which prohibits excluding anyone on the basis of sex from any benefits of any federally funded educational program, and it also prohibits any discrimination on the basis of sex in an an educational program that receives federal assistance. This is also the period in which we get the legalization of no-fault divorce. Before this time, you had to prove that the person that you were divorcing had committed some sort of violation of the marital contract. You couldn't just divorce just because you didn't love the person anymore. This is also when U.S. military academies were required by law to start admitting women, and famous Supreme Court cases such as Reed v. Reed or Roe v. Wade were decided. But second-wave feminism was about much more than just legal victories. It was more about changing cultural attitudes towards women and opening up more avenues of self-determination for women to decide what they wanted to do as far as conducting their, their lives without being punished or penalized by the culture for wanting to do more than just the white picket fence ideal that I talked about earlier. And criticism of second wave feminism tends to mimic the criticism of first-wave feminism in the sense that both of them tended to focus on the experiences of white middle or upper-class women. If you're trying to fight 
the attitude that all women are the same, of course, you don't want to come at that with just another narrative that speaks for all women. You don't want to confront people who just dismiss all women as being this or that with just another story of, well, actually, all women are this or the other thing. You want to have a, you want to allow for a wide expression to show that actually, no, not all women are the same. So we get into third wave feminism, which starts in the early 90s. And and this type of feminism, one of the things that sets it apart is its attempts to address the things which I mentioned before how women who have who are come from different socioeconomic backgrounds racial backgrounds religious backgrounds um, sexual identity etc cetera, etc cetera, how they have different uh, different experiences different ways of being made to feel less than because it's not just because oh you're a woman it's because oh you are a woman and a lesbian or you are a woman and a Muslim etc cetera, etc cetera. so third wave feminism attempted to address and redress that issue. It started in the early 90s uh, with the feminist punk subculture in Washington and also with Anita Hill's televised testimony in 1991 where she said that Clarence Thomas, who had been nominated for the Supreme Court at the time, had sexually harassed her. And it's interesting to read about her and to think how that would be treated today with the Me Too movement, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Of course, this is also the time when the internet and computers are starting to enter the mainstream and enter and enter the public consciousness. And so that greater access to uh, communication and technology also had an effect on the third wave feminism but not quite as much as it did on fourth wave, which, believe it or not, is what we're in right now. But again, we'll get to that in a minute. And one of the interesting things that defines the third wave is actually its relationship to the second wave. Prominent second wave feminists such as Gloria Steinem, for instance, are now seen as as being out of touch, as actually being too conservative and thinking, okay, well, the second wave already accomplished everything that needed to be done for women, and now we're free and the fight is over, while third wave and obviously fourth wave feminists say that actually, no, there still was, there still was and there still is a lot to be done. The third wave tended to focus more on on the culture and on legal issues insofar as the law was able to keep and to maintain the rights for women that had already been fought for. So reproductive rights, for instance, maintaining access to birth control and to abortion. Along with that, it tried to tackle issues of violence against women, for instance, sexual harassment and such. The third wave brought us such movements as, I'm not sure if I can give the exact title on air, but the one play that is the blank monologues, as well as the protests and marches where mostly women dress up in, shall we say, revealing clothing to sort of take back the night, so to speak. And efforts like that were in order to try to reclaim derogatory words such as, you know, words that I'm definitely not allowed to say on air, but you get the idea. And to take those words which are derogatory and pejorative 
The theory behind reclaiming derogatory terms such as those tend to be, well, those terms have been applied to whichever group we're talking about, in this case women. Those derogatory terms have been applied to us as a group by someone else who doesn't and refuses to understand us. But instead, if we take those words and refuse to react to them in the way that derogatory terms are reacted to, if we don't react in fear or disgust, if we don't give those derogatory terms that power, then by definition, they will stop being derogatory terms. That's the theory, at least, behind behind that, that practice. And, of course, there are arguments in support and against that. And perhaps that can be something that we get into more depth another time. But anyway, that's the idea. Along with those issues, third-wave feminism also attempted to address issues such as maternity leave policies and motherhood support for working moms, for single moms, for lower-class, you know, poor moms, as well as other workplace matters such as the glass ceiling. Now, criticism of third-wave feminism tends to revolve around the lack of cohesion, which makes sense when you consider that the whole, that one of the defining purposes behind third-wave feminism was precisely to address the multiplicity of experiences by women of different backgrounds, races, etc., etc. So, of course, there would be a lack of cohesion precisely because you had women from different backgrounds experiencing different issues. There has actually also been criticism that third-wave feminism was not inclusive enough to minority women, and that while it was a step in the right direction, it still wasn't, you know, the inclusive solution that everyone was looking for. Another criticism is that because of this theory of reclaiming, you tended to get some feminists who say, oh, you know, I want to be girly and, you know, and really explore and express my femininity and that that is an act of reclaiming. But then along with that, what obviously what happened is that when you see women who still end up doing sort of the traditional female stuff, the lipstick, the dresses and everything else, then of course the question is, well, are you actually, are you actually reclaiming that or are you just rationalizing doing what the culture wants you to do? So it kind of it goes back and forth. So now we get to fourth wave feminism, which is the wave that we are in right now. And the defining feature of fourth wave feminism is how reliant it is on technology as a means of communication and connection. So if you so if you can think of uh, any Twitter hashtags hashtags rather that have been used for feminist causes, such as of course. Me Too, uh, Yes All Women, etc., etc. Those are definitely, you know, expressions of fourth wave, fourth wave feminism. For the fourth wave also tends to focus on harassment on the street, in the workplace, on campus, etc., etc. Campus uh, sexual assault, issues of sexual harassment in institutions, such as, of course, what we've seen with Hollywood right now. Uh, the Bill Cosby allegations, the Harvey Weinstein allegations, Kevin Spacey, etc., etc. And the interesting thing about the Me Too movement is that 
it actually got started in 1997. It was started by a woman named Tarana Burke. The New York Times reported that in 1997, Ms. Burke had been working with victims of sexual violence and sexual abuse. And Ms. Burke had this life-changing conversation with a 13-year-old girl who had confided in her. But Ms. Burke felt so surprised and taken aback that she felt like she didn't give this girl adequate support. Upon reflection, Ms. Burke wanted to do more. So she created a nonprofit called Just Be. And then a few years later, in 2006, she started using the phrase Me Too as an expression of support so that the next time she or any other woman who had experienced sexual assault or sexual abuse came across someone else who had experienced the same thing, then Me Too was sort of an expression of, oh, you're not alone. I have experienced it too and we can support each other. The phrase Me Too took off when the actress Alyssa Milano uh, used it as a hashtag in the wake of the allegations against Harvey Weinstein. So why am I telling you all of this? It's because I want to bring facts and bring context to a word and to a movement that has been highly charged since the beginning. I also wanted to show that criticism of feminism, such as its tone, for instance, criticisms like that have been around since its inception. But an argument or a movement should not hinge on its tone. Of course, sometimes that's not always the case. We tend to react to the way that a message is given as well as the content of the message itself. But ideally, what would be better, I think, for everybody would be to focus on the, on the content, on the merits of arguments and movements such as these rather than the way that it's expressed. And unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for today, but I would love to continue talking about this topic with you, or perhaps we can get somebody in the studio to go into more depth on these issues. But thank you for tuning in and have a great week.